You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Join us as we focus on learning about dyslexia this October. Today, we talk to Nadine Gab about research she has conducted about the brain and how it learns to read. We will also talk about the important topic of dyslexia and how we can ensure all students learn to read. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We are really excited for today's guest because full disclosure, we have been wanting to have this guest on the podcast since we saw her on the Truth About Reading documentary teaser. Which was like almost two years ago. I know it was, but she captured us with her clarity and communication about how the brain learns to read. Yep. So we are here with Nadine Gab, and she is an associate professor of education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And her work focuses on, get ready, it's a lot, ready, developmental cognitive neuroscience. I feel like she might be too smart for us. I'm not sure. (laughs) And she specifically looks at language-based learning disabilities and typical and atypical reading development. So we're really excited to jump into this conversation today and learn a lot. <laughs> yeah, Nadine, welcome to the podcast. How Thank are you? you so much for having me. That's very exciting. Yeah. Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your research? Just set a baseline for us and our listeners. Yeah, yeah. So um, I've been working in the literacy space for, I don't know, like uh, maybe 20 years. Um, And um, um, my lab is at the intersection of many different things. So we definitely do very hardcore, basic neuroscience. Um, We do work related to education. We do work related to educational and clinical policy. We do work related to ed tech. And the questions uh, we ask are, um, how does you know typical atypical reading develops over time, and uh, look at uh, developmental trajectories of this development. So what we do a lot is we have infants uh, come to the lab, uh, maybe four to six month old, and they either have or have not a familiar risk to develop problems with reading, and then we follow them over many many years, and we look at their language development, their reading development, um, their environment. Uh, their, you know, uh, the, the which schools they go to, etc. And then we ask questions like, um, you know, in the children who subsequently develop, you know, typical reading skills versus atypical reading skills, what is different? Where do these uh, trajectories diverge? We also do a lot of um, translational work where we are different from other neuroscience labs. So we are always asking, like, how is that research question we are asking right now uh, um, uh, related to the field of education, related? to educational policy, related to clinical policy, and, and how can we, you know, translate our findings um, into contemporary questions in, in education and, and um, education policy. So we do a lot of advocacy work, a lot of like teacher training, uh, a lot of like um, fun, you know, um, seminars for kids, etc. 
That's so important. I think <laughs> there's a lot of times we see research separate from what's actually happening in classrooms. And uh, we just love hearing that you're helping to bridge that, <laughs> that divide that sometimes exists. Um, okay, so I'm going to start with a really big question that you could probably teach a whole course on. But we're going to ask you to answer in the five minutes, which is how do our brains learn how to read? Yes. Um, so, so, you know, the, the short answer is we know a lot, but we don't know everything. Um, so I think that's really important to keep in mind. So, and there is just not one way that everyone, you know, or every single brain learns to read. Um, but what we could say is, and I, you know, I'm, I, I'm sure you had many other guests saying that, that, um, reading development, if you ask people when does reading development start in the brain, uh, uh, you know, it's really hard to pinpoint. And so sometimes you hear like, well, it starts when you introduce letters. Maybe it starts when you start formal schooling. No, it should start earlier. I don't know. So it's a really interesting question. And so we believe that reading development starts in utero because the fundamental milestones for learning to read are sound and language processing. Um, and so if if you like shift it that way, then you want to look at, you know, reading development in the brain as early as in utero. And so early on, you know, we need to understand, you know, the sounds of our language. We need to understand, you know, how the sounds relate to each other. Uh, we need to, um, you know, uh, underst start understanding words, develop vocabulary, develop like how these different words go together, like the syntax, uh, you know, the and all of these things happen, you know, way before we start then mapping the sounds of our language onto the graphemes onto the written counterparts. And so when we think about how does reading develop in the brain, we need to think about oral language being the first four years of uh, reading uh, development. So that would be areas primarily you know, in the uh, you know, left hemisphere for language. So there is an area called the superior temporal lobe, which does a lot of the sound processing and the language processing that I just described. Um, and then, as I said, at one point, we are mapping these sounds onto the written counterparts, um, the graphemes. And so there's, you know, also areas uh, in the brain and the left side Um uh, um, that are, you know, uh, responsible for the, these kinds of mappings. Um, you also want to recognize print, right? So you want to recognize single letters and you want to recognize um, words. And so there's a really cool area in the brain called the uh, letterbox by Stanislav Dehen, or some people call it the visual word form area, which sounds a little bit more official. And that area is really important because it is... Um, experience dependent. So if you don't learn to read, so let's say you're an illiterate um, adult in your 50s, you don't have that area's uh, specificity. So you, this area will not respond to sounds and letters, 
But if you learn to read, you know, um, that teaching actually uh, makes the area be specifically uh, um, processing letters and sounds. And so put together, we have like a triangle in the back of our left side of the brain where you put the oral language piece, the mapping of the oral language piece onto the print and the print recognition piece uh, together. And so early on, we need to like create that triangle. So that's why learning phonics and learning like, you know, what sound does this letter make or what sound does this letter combination make, you know, is really, really important. And then subsequently, it relates to the CEO of the reading network, um, which is sitting more in the, you know, uh, front of the brain. And the CEO is responsible, like any CEO uh, in a company for, you know, integrating into a bigger picture, deciding what's important right now, what to focus on, what to ignore. And so we have this, like, like four key areas. So the CEO, the area that does the oral language processing, the area that does the mapping of the oral language onto print, and the area that does print as some of the four key areas. But it's really important that um, there is a lot more going on than these four areas. And that um, it could look, you know, a bit different depending on, you know, some factors in environment and some factors uh, in, in, you know, an individual child. Yeah, that that's so exciting to think about all of the things that are coming together to make reading happen, or I guess maybe learning to read happen so early. I I googled while you were talking. I hope that's all right. It's I was I was like exactly when in gestation does it begin? It says fifteen to twenty two weeks. Is Google is that right? Yeah, yeah. So that's when, you know, sound processing is starting. And, you know, I really think if we think about early identification or thinking about kids struggling with learning to read, we often only just start at like kindergarten or preschool without realizing that, you know, these fundamental milestones like sound processing and language processing happen so much earlier. So thinking about risk factors, thinking thinking about early identification should should move way earlier. Uh, and so that's what we focus on a lot in my lab. I feel like that leads me to ask then in your lab, what brain research have you, has, what has the brain research shown you so far? Have, has anything been like a big wow for you? I mean, do you still get stunned when you're doing <laughs> the research? Uh, yeah, yeah. So what we do a lot is, um, so we recruit infants, or, you know, toddlers, um, and then we look at their brain while they're peacefully sleeping in our big brain camera. Um, and um, we then follow them over many, many years. So we have some kids we are following into middle school from infancy. So first of all, it's just really cute to see them come back and see them grow up with us. Um, and um, we're, you know, looking at these trajectories. We are looking at, you know, how do oral language areas in the brain, but also behaviorally, you know, develop? How does it then, you know, develop uh, um when you add print to the mix, um, you know, how do these trajectories differ between kids who subsequently struggle with reading versus not? And what is the role of the environment? So, you know, home literacy and, and, and some other, you know, important factors in, in, you know, influencing these trajectories. So one important thing that we could show is, um, so for the longest time, 
we knew that the brain of children who struggle with learning to read is different from the brain of uh, uh, kids who do not struggle with learning to read. And so we didn't know as a field whether that you know difference or that alteration of brain structure and function in kids who struggle is a result of struggling with learning to read on a daily basis or is this something that you can see prior to the first day of formal schooling? Um, and we could show that some of these brain alterations in older children who, let's say, have a diagnosis of dyslexia or who are struggling readers are present, you know, as young as, you know, four. We can even see some of these alterations seem to be present in infancy. And that has important implications for policy, right? So that means that children are not coming as clean slates into the first day of school with their little backpacks. No, it means that some kids are starting their first day of school with a less optimal brain for learning to read. So we think you need to find them, you know, the latest right then or ideally way earlier so we can have a preventative um, approach uh, uh, to education uh, similar to like preventative medicine where you find, you know, kids um, who are at risk to develop problems with reading, uh, but help them early enough so they never develop problems with learning to read. I know you mentioned to us the dyslexia paradox and it sounds like it's Around, is this the same thing that we're talking about here or is it different? Yeah, so the dyslexia paradox describes the, the discrepancy between when we currently diagnose or identify children who struggle with learning to read or, you know, including dyslexia or, you know, uh, other reading disabilities and when the optimal window for intervention is, right? So we currently have this, you know, reactive approach uh, the way to fail model where we you know have you know sort of think everyone comes with a clean slate we just you know add reading instruction on top of it and then we just you know see who's going to struggle and who uh, is not going to struggle and then once kids struggle long enough at one point you know we're like okay now we need to do something maybe you know do a little bit of you know intervention maybe a little bit more maybe get an IEP evaluation, etc. But that has tremendous implication for, you know, mental health and, and, you know, academic, vocational, economic outcomes. And so what research has shown is that, you know, the window for the most effective intervention is actually way earlier than when we currently identify children as struggling readers. So more in preschool and kindergarten. And so this is the paradox that you are not getting identified as, you know, you know, having these, you know, uh, special needs for uh, uh, reading uh, until you struggle for many years. But by then, the window for the most optimal intervention, and I'm not saying the window for any intervention, but the most optimal intervention has closed. And often people ask me, why, you know, is that? I was just going to ask Yeah, you yeah. Why is that window you know, so early? And, and it is because... Um, First of all, the brain is a lot more plastic for language uh, the younger we are. So it's easier to learn a second language without an accent. And um, uh, But also, you know, it's really hard to catch up in fourth grade if you're reading on the kindergarten level and everyone else is already reading like chapter books and adding all these vocabulary and complex, you know, sentences to their, you know, 
brains uh, uh, um, and their, you know, the background knowledge that you miss uh, when you can't read outside of school or, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the content you're not accessing, the implications for, you know, other subjects like word problems and math is it's really big. And so it's really hard to catch up later. And so, you know, preventative uh, uh, education, uh, you know, is a much better way to find kids early, intervene early. And, and put them on the you know uh, trajectory, and you can prevent you know most reading difficulties that way. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I do see that question out there a lot. Like, can dyslexia be prevented? Is it is this true? And it, I guess the idea of starting earlier and intervening earlier makes sense. You're getting ahead of it. I feel that way too. Like, not to compare, but with things like speech or like. The earlier that we intervene, the better. I don't know if that's the case with everything, but I'm so glad that you spoke to that. I think that that's really important to, because there are a lot of myths out there, I think, about can dyslexia be prevented? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to, like, I often compare it to heart disease, right? So we ha- we embrace preventative medicine. We all love preventative medicine, right? So you go to your checkups and you, you know, check your cholesterol. And if it's high, you do all kinds of, like, extra exercises and change your diet and do medication. And the ultimate goal is not to develop heart disease, right? You also don't get a heart disease um, diagnosis when you, you know, just have high cholesterol. You just have a heightened risk and you need to bring down the risk. And that's the same idea here with screening and finding kids early, right? To like look at age four even earlier, see the kids who have a heightened risk to develop problems with reading, help them right then with the ultimate goal that they never develop problems with reading. I'm curious. I don't know if you can go, I don't know how deep you can go into this, but are there things that parents or teachers of the youngest kids could look for or should be looking for as these, um, these you know, risk factors? Or is it like in the brain and they wouldn't even be able to really see it. No, no. So, um, it, you know, you could see it. There is like, you know, really established pre-literacy uh, uh, measures that can reliably tell you who will, you know, who has a higher risk to develop problems with reading. And these include, um, you know, phonological awareness, so the ability to manipulate the sounds of language. And in the little kids, you could do this by, you know, asking you know, giving kids three words and ask them to decide which two sound alike, right? They don't even need to know the con- uh, concept of rhyming. You could say hat, red, house, which two sound alike, right? Uh, uh, you could also, um, you know, look at, you know, we know that letter sound knowledge, letter, you know, um, names are really important predictors. We know that really important predictors are oral language. So uh, looking at um, oral listening comprehension, uh, vocabulary, uh, um, you know, there is, you know, a series of these, you know, uh, uh, measures that uh, the science of reading the research has identified as being the key predictors of um, you know a, a successful or atypical reading development and so they could be measured as early as um, you know preschool um, um, and it could be done in a really fun way so you know um, I'm always saying like introducing literacy can be done anywhere in like a you know um, 
forest uh, preschool as much as like a more formal setting. It's really helpful. Yeah. I mean, like we were just talking about this. What could you potentially do? And I said, well, you could be like running to the forest and say, let's find two things that start with the same sound. Let's look for the things that start with the little sound, right? Uh, or you could like find all kinds of cool stuff and sort them based on, uh, um, uh, you know, which sound they start with. And, and so that can be, you know, done in a really fun way and can tell you whether some kids, you know, struggle with this uh, kinds of uh, concepts and tasks. Yeah, I, I talk about it a lot on the podcast. I do a lot of that. I have a four year old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we do a lot of that just, I mean, I'm not testing him. I'm not even, honestly, I'm not even like, I'm not even doing it really. It's often him that's yep. bringing up like, oh, I know this new sound. And he's like, what other words start with that sound? And we just kind of, mm-hmm. it is, it's almost like a game, but it is like helpful for me to know that he's hearing these things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, I... I yeah, but, but it doesn't have to... It's not like I'm testing him, you know? Yeah. So let's sit yeah. down and do a literacy test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, we... we When my kids were, you know, smaller, we did this in the car a lot, right? Yeah. So in the car, you can play all kinds of... Like, one game they still like to play is, like, we, you know, uh, play it with animals. And so you say an animal, and then the next person needs to find an animal that starts with the sound the previous animal ended with. Yeah. And so you could do this really fun chain yeah so like badger raccoon mm-hmm. you would okay that's yep neat. what mm-hmm. a fun game i mean and it, teachers could play this while i mean lots of wasted time while we're waiting for students to go to the bathroom yep <laughs> <laughs> that is so neat yeah. uh, are there i feel like there are maybe some other things that you that i don't know to share about them like any myths about dyslexia yeah. Um, yeah. So they're like on our website, goblab.com, we have a lot of these myths, I think 50 or so, uh, and that we like to debunk. Um, I think the more obvious ones are, you know, all individuals who struggle with reading are, you know, mirror the letters or, you know, read from left to right. Um, and so that's one big myth, um, or that it's related to visual processing or the alignment of your eyes. It's another big myth. Um, what else is there? Oh, that children with dyslexia can't read at all, right? Um, uh, that's another big myth. Um, that they will always grow out of their dyslexia. You just, you know, oh, it's a summer baby. Oh, it's a boy. You just wait a couple years and they will catch up. Um, what else do we have? Um, Amy, can you tell us a little bit about those ones that you just mentioned? Like, what like what is happening for someone that has dyslexia if it's not the letter reversal? Yeah, it's not yeah. struggling to read. What, what yeah, what is happening? So the letter reversal is actually something that uh, a lot of kids do. They do this all the way to like third grade, fourth grade, and then usually it goes away. And one reason kids do it, and I think, you know, um, understanding this will help maybe prevent it in a classroom setting, is when you um, learn, you know, to name things, like let's say you are a toddler and I show you like a, a pen or I show you glasses here. Um it doesn't matter how I rotate this object, it's always the same label, right? So this is a pen, but if I do this, it's still a pen. And if I rotate it, you know, 
180, whatever degree, it always stays a pen. Uh, it's the same with a book on the chair and, and, you know, glasses, whatever. But it's then you start school and someone introduces letters to you and that concept now changes, right? So if you have a B, you know, it doesn't stay a B if you rotate it. It suddenly becomes a D or like a P or like a Q, right? And so kids, some kids have a really hard time understanding that some objects that I see, some visual, you know, objects I see, 3D or 2D, you know, change labels if you change the perspective. Um, and so uh, uh, um, that's something that is just, you know, developmentally happening in many, many kids. Kids with dyslexia um, don't show like more of, you know, the letter reversals or less. Uh, um, yeah. So I think, you know, it should be addressed in, in any kid if it occurs for a long time. But mm-hmm. dyslexia can be described as um, a condition where kids have problems with word reading. So, so th- subsequently, that word reading problem can lead to problems with uh, reading fluency or reading comprehension. But the core deficit in these children is the decoding of single words. So putting the sounds together, and then you could break it down into, you know, knowing the sound of a letter, blending these sounds together, decoding these words. Um, and so, so um, that is, you know, the, the core problem in kids with a dyslexia uh, diagnosis versus kids who have a reading comprehension deficit may be, you know, good decoders, but then struggle with understanding what they read, which goes more into the oral language piece we discussed earlier. That's so helpful. Nadine, I'm, I actually work with a little guy who um, is in third grade and does have, uh, was diagnosed with dyslexia. Um, and I do notice so much that uh, he, he tends to try to pull from his memory mm-hmm. and we're trying to like break that. So for example, there was a name on the page the other day and it said Roy and he kept saying Ryan. And I said, can you, let's, you know, I did kind of what you said earlier, like, let's just cover the word for a minute. I'm going to say this, say the sounds in the word, Roy, what's the name? He said, Roy. I said, well, you keep saying Ryan, what's making you think Ryan? And what I'm guessing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. is that he has seen the word Ryan in a name, hasn't seen the word Roy and it was just moving quickly because he knew it was a There's name. There's at least a few letters that are the same. A <laughs> couple right? letters are the same and just going for it, like that whole word recognition. And we're trying, I'm trying to break that because I think his strategy thus far has been, okay, I'm just going to memorize the word. And I covered up another word. I was like, it looks like we're doing the same thing with this one. I was like, but this one, you don't know. I think you just memorized it a moment ago. And it was in a bug book and it was the word nymph. And I was like, I, I guarantee he's never seen this word before. <laughs> but he like seconds memorized it. And it was like very fool, kind of fooling if, if I wasn't looking out for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, the the memorizing word becomes eventually important, right? Because you don't want to sound out every single word for the rest of your life. But, uh, you know, so so we are building a bigger 
side word repertoire. And I'm not meaning the words that, you know, you can't decode. I'm meaning words that you just recognize because you've seen them over and over and over again. Um, but it is really important that early on you, you know, decode so you can, you know, uh, you know, have an accurate uh, representation of the word and you can, you know, decode new words that are not part of your side words. Uh, um, so, you know, I think it's, it's uh, you know, but it can be a habit, you know, to to rely on this orthographic, you know, um, mapping and, and the, the object recognition uh, if you are struggling with putting the sounds together. Yeah, that's helpful. So I think we, we do know, right? What, what we do know is that 95% of kids can learn how to read and that's promising. But how do we do this, Nadine? How do, how do we ensure that 95% of kids learn how to read? Yeah, so I think, you know, there's many different factors that come together. So um, uh, I think, you know, one important piece that we work on is the early, you know, identification of children at risk. So the, you know, screening and, and, you know, there has been more and more legislation related to screening and and early identification uh, in educational setting. We do a big push off, like moving this also into community settings. So having pediatricians uh, do screening, having social workers be involved in the early identification, having uh, libraries play a role in this. Um, so it can be a community effort in addition to um, like churches, et cetera, in addition to the school setting. But, you know, we can screen the whole world if we don't do anything in response to it. It's kind of useless, right? So first of all, you need to know how to respond to a screening um, uh, result. So you need to be able to interpret it. You need to be able to, you know, though, okay, this group of children or this individual child needs the following things. So that brings us to teacher training. Uh, uh, that brings us to, you know, really good professional development. Um, and then, you know, some kids maybe get identified and then they get maybe you know, put into tier two, tier three, and the tier two and tier three doesn't align with the tier one curriculum. And so that leads to very big confusion, right? So you get some of the really good, like sounding out words, let's say in a tier three setting and special education, and then you're going back into the classroom where there, you know, there's no emphasis on this. Um, so that, that brings you back and forth, confuses you and almost like erases what you've done in the hard work, uh, you know, on a one-on-one maybe special education setting. I was thinking about that with Lori's student. Like I wonder when you were talking, I was like, I wonder what's happening in school. Yeah. You know, you're trying to teach, undo something and. Totally. Yeah. And our district is, uh, uses um, balanced literacy, uh, Lucy Calkins and Fontes and Pinnell. So I can say that it's very minimal. Uh, I mean, it is three queuing and I've, I've had to undo that work, but it is like a constant, I feel like it's a um, tug of war. You know, that's where he's going every day, right? That's where he's yeah. spending yeah, yeah, yeah. more time. It's really difficult. That's such a good yeah. point to point out. Yeah. So, you know, and that's not all of it. I think there's many more factors, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, 
making sure we have unbiased assessments and and you know uh, uh, curricula making sure you know we look at these you know uh, environmental factors um um poverty the influence of you know the home literacy the influence of you know neighborhood factors stress uh you know parents maybe who who struggle with you know you know, substance abuse or, you know, some, there's a lot going on in, 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 in kids' lives. And so seeing the child as a whole and seeing literacy as a skill that, you know, needs to develop with all of these factors taken into account uh, 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 will bring us hopefully to, you know, a better um, outcome uh, in long term. Um, I one quick question about the early screeners too, and this is like a genuine question because it seems like it could be a little bit messy with like where where are they getting screened if it's before kindergarten like is it they don't all have pre-k necessarily and if it should be earlier than pre-k even where does that happen yeah yeah so we really push that's my one of my favorite topics right now we really push for you know pediatricians to play a bigger role uh and i can give you a bit bit of background on this so pediatricians actually screen for autism and adhd right so uh it's just standard of like uh checkups um and so if you ask them so why do you screen for autism and adhd but you don't screen for learning disabilities and that's the same for dyscalculia dysgraphia or any of them um they will they will often answer you well because autism and adhd often require a medical response to screening and so we're you know uh, in the medical field so that's within our you know uh, area of expertise but learning disabilities would require an educational intervention or an educational response to screening. So that's outside of our expertise. So we have nothing to do with this. We argue back saying, no, 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 because there's so big implication for mental health. We see higher rates of anxiety and depression in kids with learning disabilities. We see, you know, all these impacts on uh, economic outcome, academic outcome, vocational outcome. We know that, you know, it being, you know, um, less proficient in reading has implication for your health because you can't maybe read the prescription uh, bottle. You can't, uh, you know, decide between two surgeries if someone gives you a leaflet to decide which one you want to do, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, uh, we say, you know, you should start screening uh, and then th- we need to start establishing some sort of referral process from the screening to maybe, you know, uh, a, you know more in-depth screening. Maybe you could do like a one-minute screening in a pediatric practice, which could lead to a more in-depth screening, which could then relate to some referral mechanisms or, you know, increased communication between pediatricians and schools. Um, we just developed a checklist uh, for the pediatric practice. Because they said, well, even if we want to do it, there is no checklist out there. <laughs> so we're, you know, working on, you know, validating this and, and seeing how it could be implemented in, you know, pediatric settings. That's so cool. That's what I was going to say. I mean, I, I have to do them every time I go to the pediatrician with my son. So And, and it's so quick to just do it, you know, yes, I'm seeing these things or no, I'm not seeing those things, at least as a first step. Mm-hmm. It seems like 
why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We also think libraries could play a big role, right? So you could have like these screening days in libraries, maybe the yeah. first four weekends before, you know, in the school year. And then maybe related to like some, you know, offering like community groups, play groups that focus on certain skills, certain milestones, maybe link it to what kind of books you would recommend for this child reading, depending on which milestones he or she or they have reached uh, and not reached yet um there's many different ways how you know it, it could be taking that the burden could be taken away from school more i don't say they should stop doing it but we could right. do some of the you know quicker pre-screenings in community settings yeah and have i would say you have more information going into school yep. right about mm -hmm. a student than just mm -hmm. like you said they don't necessarily just show up as a clean state slate that you have to figure out what's what's happening exactly yes I love this. I don't know how we can help, but if <laughs> if we can help. <laughs> you know, know, just talking about it and raising awareness <laughs> and having more people say, why don't we do this uh, uh, is a big part of like, you know, uh, uh, making change and, and, and making sure people, you know, buy in and, and, and help with you know, leading the change. I love the idea, too, of the community just rallying around the next generation. It just feels so mm -hmm. important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, is there anything else that you want our listeners to know about, I guess, dyslexia specifically, or we can open it to anything about learning to read? Or um, I think, you know, it would be great if we could, you know, focus more on the mental health piece. So I feel like a lot of people just focus on the academics and we're looking at the, do, do they pro make progress in word reading and do they make progress on this assessment, et cetera. But, but, you know, we, we see this on a daily basis, like struggling with learning to read has tremendous implication for your self-esteem, how you see yourself as a learner, how motivated you are to learn. We always say that reading is a child's first job, right? So, oh, you start kindergarten, you're going to learn to read. Are you going to, you know, read to your little sister? Oh, soon you can read the back of the cereal box, right? It's sort of a kid's first job. Failing at your first job is like, has tremendous, tremendous implication for, you know, your mental health, your, you know, your, your, your self-esteem, et cetera. So I feel like we, yes, we need to focus on academics, but I feel like we need to focus even more on, you know, the mental health piece. And that's where, um, you know, the, the prevention comes in. So if they, you know, if we find these children early, help early, you know, the mental health piece is, you know, so much better than, you know, developing really good interventions in sixth grade when, you know, you've already, you know, went through five, six years of, of struggling and, and what that does to, to your mental health. Nadine, what about the parents who hear from schools something like, well, just keep reading to your child at home. They'll get it eventually. Just keep reading to them. Keep doing it. What would you say to them? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we know that home literacy plays a role. So it's so we're not saying it doesn't play a role at all. So it is important to like, you know, 
read to your child early, have a variety of books from the library or, you know, in your environment, point out letters when you go grocery shopping, you know, uh, these kinds of things. But actually, if you look at, you know, the, the factors predicting reading outcome, home literacy does predict a little bit, but not like a big portion of it. And so, you know, um, yes, you can see reading disabilities in kids who have really strong home literacy environments and in kids who don't have strong literacy environments. So, so you know, just reading to your child and just putting them, you know, uh, uh, emerged into a, a, um, a, a rich literacy environment doesn't automatically make them a reader. Uh, it needs like explicit instruction and it needs, you know, explicit, you know, instruction that sometimes needs to look a little bit more different in terms of frequency, intensity, intensity, and but also, you know, uh, uh, um, rigorous following the, you know, the, 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 you know, structured, you know, steps. Um, uh, and so I think, uh, um, you know, not feeling guilty would I tell them and, and, you know, just making sure that the child is, you know, still enjoying books and literacy and still enjoying, you know, uh, listening to these wonderful stories, which will enhance their vocabulary, which will enhance their number of complex sentences they hear. And, and, you know, podcasts can play a really big role here as well. Um, I was just talking to um, a mom who was really worried about the you know the the lower vocabulary in in um her son because of the uh, struggling reading piece and and you know I asked her what is your son interested in and she said all he's interested in is these electric cars and so I'm like find a podcast uh, and so now he's the expert and has like really boosted <laughs> his self esteem because he knows everything about electric cars wants to become a mechanical engineer it's really motivated oh, wow. and has really increased vocabulary and and you know complex listening comprehension uh, pieces through a podcast so. So um, I feel like, um, you know, you can, you know, just keep doing more of the good stuff and, and, and uh, try to, like, keep the, the love of reading in any form or the love of listening to stories. Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. And such practical advice. Well, thank you so much. This was such a treat. And uh, we can we just we can't wait to hear or see or watch something with you like with you again. It's just you're so captivating and you make things really easy to understand. So thank you for being here and thank you for all that you do. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was fun. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast Facebook group. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy Podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds, PBC, or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.